on this week's episode of I Believe Now What, we want to go over a topic that I think is near and dear to so many Christians. Have you ever had that moment in your life where you just sinned, you messed up, you knew you did wrong, and you feel so separated from God? You don't even feel worthy to open up your Bible. Well, in today's episode, we're going to be going over Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, to give us a good reminder that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Without any further delay, let's go ahead and get into it. Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Hey, I hope you all are having a happy Wednesday out there or whatever day you're listening to this, because honestly, we try to make podcasts here that you can listen to anytime and not really time specific, unless we're doing one of our current event episodes. But if this is your first time here, I believe now what is really a podcast that tries to define itself in its name. We want to talk about the now what that comes after you say I believe. So whether you are a seasoned Christian or a new Christian, we welcome you and hope we can grow and learn together. So as you heard from the intro, I believe there's times in a Christian's life where we truly just feel horrible, that we have sinned, we have done something wrong. And I'm talking about as a Christian, we've sinned, we've done something wrong, and we just feel totally unworthy to come into God's presence, that we feel unworthy to open up our Bible and read those passages. We feel unworthy to go to Him in prayer and we just feel disgusted with ourselves. But sometimes we do need a reminder to let us know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's why we're going to go over Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. And honestly, there's so many different passages that deal with this. The book of Hebrews is amazing with this, especially on how Christ is our high priest. He is the one who can intercede for us on our behalf because he's been tempted just as we were tempted in human flesh. He knows what it's like to be tempted, but even more so because he's walked through it without ever failing. You know, we collapse in temptation somewhere between maybe at the beginning, maybe halfway through, or maybe close to the end, but he makes it all the way through without ever sinning. So he truly knows what it's like to walk in human flesh. And we have that advocate, Jesus Christ, to advocate for us with the Father. So we can know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And that's so key, in Christ. So without further delay, let's go ahead and jump into the passage. So starting at verse 31, we read, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us 
from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Oh my gosh, I love this passage so much. And this comes from, honestly, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And honestly, if there's any main takeaway from this passage today, number one, it's whatever the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart through these verses. Never want to detract from that. Number two, there is nothing, and when I say nothing, I mean nothing that can ever separate a Christian from the love of God that we have in his son, Christ Jesus. As we examine this text, we're going to see the Apostle Paul here, because he's the one who wrote this, the book of Romans. Uh, he's, you're going to see him start asking a series of hypothetical questions, and then it ends with the most beautiful, poetic answer. And before we really start diving into these verses, I want to really say, if you read through, and I've talked to Christians like this before, because I've encountered Christians, you know, whether it be on social media or in real life, you know, they have a problem. When they sin, they feel that separation that we were talking about earlier. They just feel unworthy to even approach God, read his word, or anything like that. And I've felt this way before, too. And I mean, I still do to this day, so I'm preaching to myself, really, as well. But I really love to emphasize how Romans chapter 7, specifically starting at verse 14, and we've talked about it on this podcast before, how the Apostle Paul is talking about, woe is me, you know, O wretched man that I am. I do the things that I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I want to do. He's talking about the Christian struggle and how the struggle is real, how our spirit is made alive and new in Christ Jesus, but we're still in this earthly flesh that longs for sin and is tainted for sin. And really how we as Christians need to exercise ourselves in righteousness. And we can do that because we have the Holy Spirit. But I love how Paul transitions from that, you know, oh wretched man that I am, into Romans chapter 8 and how there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and to remember that. And, you know, the Bible did not originally come with chapters and verses, if you didn't know this. You know, it was all written as one letter. So I almost don't even like how the uh, translators of the Bible put a divide there between the end of Romans chapter 7 into Romans chapter 8, because Romans chapter 8 just flows so well with it. You have that feeling as a Christian when you know you've messed up, you feel horrible about yourself, but then right in the beginning of chapter 8, we get that reminder. And Paul did this on purpose, I'm sure, that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, one thing I don't want you to do is run away with this message and think, okay, I can go ahead and sin and not feel bad about it because there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No, a Christian doesn't have that attitude. It's a good thing to mourn over your sin. Jesus said himself said, blessed are those who mourn, and he's talking about sin there. Uh, we should mourn over our sin. We should feel horrible about our sin, but we don't dwell in that place, and we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And especially, like we're going over today, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So as we examine this text, uh, we're going to see the Apostle Paul, as I said earlier, he's going to start asking these series of hypothetical questions. And then he ends with that beautiful, beautiful poetic answer. And maybe it's just poetic in my mind, but I really see such amazing poetry and just beautiful words in this. Now, we're going to go ahead. The first question we see is in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? Now, the obvious question you may have if you've read this verse, 
uh, is what things are you talking about, Paul? What do you mean, what things? What shall we say to these things? He could have been talking about the entire letter up to this point, uh, the entire letter of Romans. He could have been talking about everything that he's been addressing in chapter 8. Uh, and he could have been talking about just the previous few verses that he wrote. Honestly, we don't know the true answer, but I do want to go ahead and read the last few verses of this point, so that way we can keep this in context, backing up to verse 28. So Paul said, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? He just dropped some giant bombshells, essentially telling us that if we are Christians and we believe in Christ Jesus, God causes all things to work together for the good in our lives. Now, some people will take this verse and throw it out of context, and they'll say, well, you know, God works all things together for the good. And that's true, but you got to read the rest of it. He works together the, thing, the, the, the good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And then goes into that beautiful golden chain, as we know it, of salvation, uh, the very fact that we are saved before eternity passed. And I know this can be a controversial issue in today's day and age, the whole Calvinism and Arminianism debate, but let's just read the text and read it for exactly what it says. For those whom he foreknew, meaning God knew us beforehand, this doesn't mean God looked into the future and saw that we were going to believe. No, that doesn't mean that. If you look up the Greek word for foreknew, New is talking about a specific relationship. It means he knew us beforehand. Yes, if you look in the Greek, though, I do want to be very clear. Foreknew can have two different meanings. One, to look ahead, or two, to preordain. And if we look at the context of this, it's very obvious that it's talking about preordaining here. For those whom he foreknew. The word knew in the Bible, and this really where you got to kind of understand context and proper hermeneutics here. The word new in these days, the way Paul's addressing it in Jesus's time, and even back in Old Testament times, means very different than how we use the word new. And let me give you an example. Romans, or uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse uh, 21 through 23, you know, we see Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you to people. Depart from me, I never knew you. Now, Jesus is talking about the end of times. He's talking about that uh, great white throne judgment. There are going to be people who go to Jesus and say, Lord, I did this and I did that, and I did all these things in your name, and Jesus is going to tell him, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, obviously, Jesus is God. Jesus knows who this person is. So what does he mean, I never knew you? He obviously knows this person isn't saved, so he has to know who they are. Well, when we use the word know or knew, he's talking about a personal, intimate relationship. When Ephesians 1 talks about how God knew us before the very foundations of the world, that we were saved in Christ before the very foundation of the world, meaning he had a relationship with us before the foundations of the world. He 
knows us. Let me give you another example of this. If you go back, and this is a more intimate example, especially in marriage, go back to Mary and Joseph. Mary, the mother of Christ, Joseph, his earthly father for all intents and purposes. The Bible talks about there in the book of Matthew that, uh, you know, Mary, uh, Matthew and Luke, I believe, uh, that Joseph did not know Mary, it says, until Mary had already uh, gave birth to Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Obviously, Joseph knows who Mary is. Uh, you know, that's his wife. He was married to her. But what it's talking about is an intimate relationship, specifically here a sexual relationship in this context. Joseph didn't know Mary until after Christ was born. So meaning they didn't get intimate and have an intimate relationship and consummate that marriage, if you will, until after Christ was born, because Mary had to remain a virgin. Also, mind you, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Mary did not remain a virgin, unlike, you know, some denominations would have you believe. She had kids. She bore kids. Joseph, you know, did husband and wife things with Mary. Uh, but he didn't know her until after Jesus was born. And you also see in the Old Testament this way of knowing uh, no, he did not know her until this happened. You see this in other passages. So the word know, that was a very long explanation, but the word know or knew has a very different meaning then than we think of it today, and we got to kind of keep this in its proper place. So when we read the word for knew here, it's talking about how God knew us before the very foundation of the world. And he also, because he knew us, he also predestined us to be conformed to the image of the Son, predestined, meaning that God chose beforehand to save some people and make them conformed into the image of Christ. It's very plain, very simple. Some people try to twist this around and be like, oh, well, the Bible doesn't actually mean predestined. It, it, it means something else, you know. And No, <laughs> just read it plain for what it says. Also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. This is how we get more and more conformed into the image of Christ, through sanctification and eventually glorification. So then he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, verse 30, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? And the main point that Paul is trying to say here is, look, you were predestined from the very beginning of the earth, before the foundations of the earth. Like I said, go back to Ephesians 1 if you really want to read more into that. Romans 9 also touches up on this. You, since you were predestined from the very beginning, before you were ever born, before the very foundations of the world, you need to be confident that God is for you, and he loves you, and he will never let you go. This is essentially why Paul is saying, what shall we say to these things, and gives his explanation after. And what I really love is he answers his question with another question, and says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, there's no question about it here. I mean, this is what he's saying. He, if you believe in Christ as Lord, then God is for you, and there should be no question about it whatsoever. Uh, a man named Joseph Benson, uh, he's an English minister from about the 1800s, and he actually wrote this quote I want to read you on this question itself. He said, What real hurt 
can the world, the devil, or all his instruments do us by our, all of our sufferings from them? We who were called when we were adverse, justified when we were guilty, sanctified when unholy, shall we have reason to hope, be in due time glorified through the now despised, oppressed, and persecuted? Can any or all our enemies, whether visible or invisible, with any success, oppose our enjoying the inheritance of the children of God. I love that. That is so beautiful. Or to quote Arthur Pink in this, uh, Arthur Pink, if you don't know who he is, he writes some really good books. Check out The Sovereignty of God if you get the chance. My favorite book by him, old, old pastor. But Arthur Pink wrote, who is more powerful, God or the devil? There's no question there. It's God. If God is for you, who can be against you? No one. And that's the answer. No one can be against you. Oh, they can stand up and try to act like they're against you, but nobody is going to prevail against you. I mean, this perfectly parallels Psalm chapter 18, verse 6, where it says, The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Beautiful. In verse 32, Paul gives us even more reason. He says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So in other words, since Paul gave, or sorry, since God gave his son Jesus to die in our place, to bear the wrath of God in our place, to take the punishment that we deserved in our place, how then can God, is God, not going to freely give us all things in Christ Jesus? Now, the natural response to this is, wait, 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 what do you mean by all things? And no, it's not talking about a brand new Ford F-150 or a new hunting rifle or something like that, you know, whatever you're into. Uh, he is talking about what he gives us through his son's sacrifice on the cross. That is the forgiveness of sins and eternal life worshiping him. That is the end goal, people. There is nothing else that can measure up to that. Not any riches on earth that you can possibly think of can measure up to that. That is the all things. And in that, we can find the all things. In other words, God did not... Oh, I just dropped something. <laughs> but in other words, God did not sacrifice his son and sit back in a corner and just hope that something good was going to come out of this. Oh my gosh, I hope Tim believes today. No, he knew it was going to happen. He knew something good was going to happen because he's the one making it happen. He sacrificed his son knowing that he would be redeeming to himself a group of people for redemption and this is us, the Christian, everyone who believes in Christ Jesus. I know some people get worried, like, oh, once they discover the doctrine of election, like, oh my gosh, I believe, but what if I'm not elect? If you believe in Christ Jesus, then you are elect. There's no other way out of it possible. God would never have revealed himself to you if that's the case. And if that's not enough, Paul asks another question in verse 33. He says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now, to understand this question, we must first understand what the word elect means. I know I've been throwing it around out there a little bit. In the original language, this word means chosen out. 
God chose you out to select. God selected you. In other words, Paul is saying, since God chose us, the believer, the Christian, that is the one who believes, who can possibly place any charge against you? The word charged here is used in a very legal sense in the original language, as if it's some type of court and someone is accusing you of something in court. You know, your picture, you're in a courtroom, someone's accusing you. Paul is saying with this question, there is no charge that anyone or anything could ever bring about for those who believe. This is reiterating the very first verse in Romans chapter 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is saying because you have Christ's imputed righteousness, because you were chosen before the very foundations of the earth in Christ Jesus, there is nothing that anyone, a person, the devil, whoever, could ever bring against you that would take you out of that justification, that would take you out and make you guilty before God because you have Christ's imputed righteousness. I mean, this is the very thing when I'm when I'm doing evangelism or I'm talking to people about how the gospel works when I share it. I always bring this up that when a person dies, they will not be judged for the things that they said and did and thought and acted, but rather they will be judged based on Christ because that's what it means to receive Christ's imputed righteousness. So in other words, God is not seeing you in all your horrible actions. Rather, he is seeing his son in you. That's what it means to have Christ's imputed righteousness. That is why we are declared innocent. Christ, who fulfilled the law, kept it perfectly, every single jot and tittle and whatnot, he kept it perfectly. That is now imputed to us. Therefore, through Christ, we as Christians have perfectly kept the law. Not because of anything we ever did, I want to make that very clear, but rather because of everything that Christ did. And when we believe in him and place our faith in him, that righteousness has been imputed to us. And you can even make the argument that it was imputed to us before the even very foundations of the world. This is why Paul says in the beginning of Romans chapter 8 that the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled in us through Christ. And if that's not enough, the Apostle Paul puts some icing on the cake just as a reminder, saying that it is God who justifies, it is God who forgives, and it is God who has the final say. It's not your neighbor down the street, it's not your boss at work, it's not the devil, it is God who justifies us as holy and clean in Christ Jesus. Nobody else gets a say in that. It is God who justifies. And in verse 34, Paul asks then, who is it that condemns? then answers it by saying, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he who was raised, because that's just as important, if not more, who is at the right hand of God, who alter, also intercedes for us. I actually love what Pastor John MacArthur writes in his commentary on this passage, and I want to briefly summarize it here. He says, there's four reasons a believer will never be found guilty. Quote that, never be found guilty. Number one, Christ's death. Number two, his resurrection. Number three, his exalted position. And number four, his continual intercession for believers. 
Now, to understand that better, I actually want to point you over to Hebrews chapter 7. We talked about it a little bit in the beginning, but specifically verses 23 through 25. It says, The former priests, on one hand, existed in, a, in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, the priests couldn't continue because they would die. They were human. But verse 24, But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, he doesn't die, he is at the right hand of the Father, he holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 25, therefore he is able also to savor forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have a high priest in heaven who will never die and who is continually making intercession for us on our behalf. Isn't that amazing? Next, in verse 35, Paul asks, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now, mind you, Paul was just not pulling things out of thin air when he was talking about this. He was talking from his own experience. He is making the statement that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us. No matter how hard it gets, no matter who tries to condemn you, no matter what Satan and this world try to throw at you, nothing can separate you from not only Christ, but also the love of Christ. And then in verse 36, Paul then quotes Psalm 44, 22. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In these days, it, it was looked down. In these days that Paul was in, it was looked down to be a Christian. And sadly, we can see that becoming more and more and more a thing. A, a true Christian, that is, that preaches a true gospel. But specifically in those times, in Paul's times, Christians were killed murdered and tortured for the faith. And that's still going on today in other countries. We get in our little first world American bubble, and I know we have audience members from, from various parts of the world who may be able to attest to this. I see we got people from South Africa and other countries like that that are listening in. But here in our little American bubble, we can get so fixated on how we have freedom of religion and we can say what we want and do what we want. And the worst type of persecution we're going to get is someone is going to say mean things to us. Maybe they'll, they'll vandalize our house. But there are people in this world who are going through real, real persecution. And I'm talking about death threats, things of that nature. And this was no different from what Paul was going through in his life talking about the sword, peril, famine, nakedness. These were all things that Paul experienced. Just think on that for a minute. None of that, though, none of that can separate us from the love of Christ. And you know who really knew this? If you go back and read about ancient Christian history and how Christians were being dipped in tar and, and used as street lamps for Emperor Nero of Rome, how Christians were being fed to lions in the Roman Colosseum. That was one of the greatest evangelism tools, period. What that enemy meant for evil, God used for good. You know why? Because those people who were being fed to lions or being about to, about to be killed 
the people in the Colosseum seats, the people on the streets, they saw their face. And there's historians that write about this. They saw their face and they saw that there was no fear, that they knew when they died and they took their last breath on this earth, that they were going to be with their father in heaven. That was something when people saw, they said, I want some of that. There was a famous quote, and I can't remember who said it, but they said the blood of the martyrs were the seeds of Christianity evangelism. The blood of the martyrs were the seeds of evangelism. Watching those people fearlessly face death, knowing that they were going to be with God, knowing that they were going to be with Christ. They showed no fear, and people looked and said, I want that. I want that. And then finally, back in our stuff, final three verses, the apostle closes with some of the most beautiful and comforting words a Christian can ever read. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him, Christ, who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Brothers and sisters, if you are going through a period of sin, I don't want to reinforce you in that. It's wrong. It's bad. You should mourn over it. But don't ever think that it makes us no longer clean, that we can lose our salvation, that we have sinned our way out of heaven. We have an advocate with God through our permanent high priest, Christ Jesus, who constantly intercedes for us on our behalf. I have no words that can express gratitude for that. The feeling of unworthiness overwhelms me. That the almighty creator of the universe looks at a wretched person like me and says, I love you and I will never leave you or forsake you. Brothers and sisters, if you are losing confidence, if you feel you are not worthy, I highly suggest read over these passages. Pray over these passages. Rejoice to God over these passages. And know that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus.